Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. For November, the focus is on Glen Allocky. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about a number of different things, but core to it all is Mammoth Distilling out of Michigan. And today, from Mammoth, we've got Ari Sussman and Colin, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Goddard. Got it. Got it. Yeah, pretty close. Oh, pretty yeah. close. Okay. Okay. I will I will take it. So Ari, Colin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So um you guys uh before uh we do any before I do any kind of episode like this, um normally doing a lot of research, listening to a lot of podcasts and reading interviews and such. And um I must say it was a little surprising. Um you don't do a ton of interviews for the number of projects that you're involved in. <laughs> uh, we've been, yeah, I, guilty as charged, right? Um, <clears throat> Mammoth Distilling is in the midst of several multi-year, fairly substantial projects. And uh, we could certainly spend more time talking about it. I think that uh, internally we've discussed it and we thought maybe we should tell more people about some of the things that we're doing. I found them all, and I really mean all, like fascinating. The first call that I had with Ari uh, was 10, 15 minutes, just idea after idea after idea. And we thought about like four or five different episodes you can make out of it. Um, and uh, that seems to be holding true so far, but we're going to start with this one and see see how far we get. Uh, but you guys are always welcome back on. So uh, the interviews that have been given, the podcast episodes that have gone out about Mammoth about Rose and Rye projects um, have largely, in my mind, focused on on the Rose and Rye project, South Manitou, and everything that goes into that. So um, I want to put that as the second part of the interview um, and spend a little time just getting into you know Mammoth itself and and the distillery, the products you've got going on right now, um, just to set the stage for for the Rosen project in the history of the distillery. So. Uh, Let's go right to the beginning. Where did Mammoth start? I think Ari, I'll let you, I'll let you lead off on this one because you're sure, dry. <laughs> so uh, Mammoth officially started in 2015-ish, I should say. Um, so I'll, <laughs> but I'm going to rewind even before that. Um, it was about 2013 or so. I was working at the distillery at Michigan State University, Michigan. State University was the first research university, sort of the first major university in the U.S. with a distilling program uh, founded by the late, great Dr. Chris Berglund, without whom I certainly wouldn't be here. Uh, he's a great mentor. And a great mentor, I think, to many uh, folks that got into distilling up to about 15 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago. And at Michigan State University, one of the things we did at the Artisan Distilling Program was product development and process development for craft distillers. And during my five or so years there, we had dozens of craft distilleries, and not just craft distilleries, some were very large distilleries. Um, distilleries uh, that have been around for 
generations in places like Kentucky and Tennessee that uh, maybe we're looking to innovate uh, and maybe put some scientific might uh, behind the traditional assumptions that they have been making about the product. So um, among <clears throat> the, the many distilleries that came through what we call Red Cedar Spirits, Michigan State University is on the, the Red Cedar River, um, were a handful of, uh, of gentlemen from Mammoth Distilling who several of them were Michigan State alumni. And when they heard that Michigan State had a program, they wanted to come in and have their products development. I'm speaking about uh, uh, Mark Shear, Chad Munger, Doug Nickel did not go to, uh, went to University of Michigan, um, but lots of Michigan connections there. They had the idea of starting a distillery in Northern Michigan, uh, which had been for several decades, uh, sort of on an economic downswing. Um, and they all have strong personal relationships with Northern Michigan, as do I, as, as Colin. Um, and uh, the, the concept was to put a distillery in Northern Michigan. And throughout the years, as we kind of thought about what that means, um, we discovered that Michigan in general and Northern Michigan in particular has a strong agricultural heritage and lineage that is in a certain sense, all but forgotten. Um, but we at Mammoth have been able to sort of tap into several historical veins um, and find some really just captivating, authentic, real, non-BS stories uh, of the world around us. I think a lot of people, if they're familiar with Michigan and spirits, uh, it, it, usually the story that's told is that 75% of all the spirits that came into the United States during Prohibition came in through Michigan. Michigan has the longest uh, coastline of any state, um, uh, aside from Alaska. But So there's lots of places for smugglers uh, to bring in booze close enough to Chicago, which was the central distribution hub. Um, so we were aware of this story of smuggling Canadian whiskey, and what we've uncovered at Mammoth is several other stories. Um, so that was sort of the genesis of, of Mammoth was to really create jobs and, uh, and, and reasons for tourists to come to Northern Michigan. That was the high-minded concept. Uh, what that means as of today is that Mammoth Distilling has uh, uh, an alcohol factory distillery, Colin is sitting at right now, as well as five tasting rooms uh, around the state of Michigan. And at this point, we operate now a handful of farms uh, as well. So we're quite vertically integrated from the dirt uh, to the cocktail bar. Um, Colin, you can go ahead and add in any color or shading. Yeah. So yeah, I, I joined Mammoth um, a little bit after the Genesis um, in 2016. Uh, we were opening the first tasting room, um, which is our Central Lake location. And um, I had previously just left the brewery that I was at before that. Um, and through some some friends of Chad and Tracy's, uh, they were looking for someone to run the tasting rooms at the time. Um, I'd done lots of front of house stuff and obviously had a lot of experience and back of the house stuff kind of thing. So um, they brought me over and, and once I met them, um, if you ever get an opportunity to meet or talk to Chad or Tracy, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of the stuff that people have a tendency to say is often fluff but 
as soon as I met Chad and Tracy, you could tell that these people are the real deal and are really looking to do what they are saying they're trying to set out to do. So I was hooked initially both on, you know, the story of who Mammoth wanted to be and, and the people behind it. Um, so I helped them open the first tasting room in 2016. Um, and then our second uh, following Traverse City. And then um, we moved the still up here in 2018, I think. And then uh, we got the alcohol factory going up here. And at which point, um, under a lot of guidance from, from Ari, um, we, uh, we got the still and everything else running up here. Um, we've kind of been sailing ever since. So, and it's just continued to, to grow and grow and again, many different directions, both from tasting room aspects, distilling, and especially in, in the farm and agriculture side of things. And it is worth noting, I know this is an audio only podcast, but um, just for a visual over Ari's right shoulder is a mini model of an Alembic still. Uh, so was that an inspiration or is that just kind of for, for fun as part of the video? <laughs> That was no. This is this is. I'm actually sitting in my living room, uh, and uh, that is that is a, a still that was uh, gifted to me by a mentor, which I, I keep on my bookshelf. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so oddly enough, I, I was in Traverse City last year. Uh, had meant to stop through Sleeping Bear, and, and we just kind of ran out of time, so we went right to Traverse City, and uh, I spent most of my time there with with friends and the only distillery we visited was was Traverse City Whiskey Company. And right after I came back home, it was when I learned about Mammoth, of course. But something that they talked about at Traverse City that is echoed in much of what uh, you talk about and write about on the website and interviews is the incredible diversity in Michigan's agriculture. Everything from fruits to grains and everything in between is, you know, everything seems to grow there in one climate zone or another within the state. Um, and from, from what you've said, it seems like a very unique state in that way that it has such a, a wide variance. So um, what has that gifted you so far in, in kind of the grand scheme of things in, in what you can do at Mammoth? I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right with what you're honing in on. Um, I mean, we're super, super blessed with our agriculture up here. Um, it's a really, really unique microclimate, um, highly affected by the surrounding Great Lakes and, and large freshwater source as well. Um, but it's, it's almost daunting because there's so many stories and so much potential in so many directions that it's like, it's, it's like limitless to the point of like, oh my God, where do we even start here there's a million different directions that we could go sometimes we have a hard time focusing in on on one thing at mammoth because we want to do it all but it's 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 kind of crazy i it, it really is limitless opportunity from grain to fruit to i mean you name it we pretty much grow it yeah just to, to piggyback on what colin is saying um the sort of i, I kind of see three legs of the agricultural stool uh, when it comes to what makes Michigan particularly unique. Uh, the first one is maybe the reason you went up there, which was Sleeping Bear Dunes and these beautiful lake shores and they're gorgeous. It happens that Michigan is a peninsula, it's actually two peninsulas. 
that jut out into the largest reservoir of fresh water on earth. So I go to Kentucky a lot. I love taking distillery tours. Um, people love talking about water here and there. Um, and uh, if, if water is a concern, you know, water is a concern uh, as a distiller. And Michigan is blessed with a abundance of the freshest, cleanest, you know, amazing water reservoir, uh, which we use to our advantage. But the second sort of leg of the Michigan agricultural stool is um, we have two very different soil types in Michigan. The, uh, the north of Michigan is very sandy. And as you move further down south, it, there, there are other soil types. Um, and different, uh, different crops grow well in each of those soil types. And then if you can superimpose on top of those uh, soil types, we have sort of within Michigan and around Michigan, elevation in, uh, in because of the strange weather that comes off the Great Lakes in these different temperature zones, essentially climate zones. So between the different growth zones based on different soil types and climate zones, there are pockets across Michigan to grow many different things. So for instance, Northern Michigan, which is the cherry capital of the United States, uh, is a climate twin, shares a climate with certain parts of Japan. Totally different uh, uh, latitude, um, but there's a reason why cherries grow really great in both of those locations. Other parts of Michigan uh, share climate zones that are much more like Iowa uh, and Indiana, and there you see great corn production. Um, and then the UP is quite cold and wonderful for winter hardy grains in particular. And so in, in, in fact, the, the alcohol factory that, that Colin is sitting in right now is like a stone's throw from the 45th degree parallel, the 45th parallel. So what that means is you know, the alcohol factory and sort of our ground zero is halfway between the equator and the North Pole, right? So we've got massive temperature fluctuations. Um, <laughs> And then the third leg of that stool, aside from the water, the soil and climate, the third one is Michigan State University. Uh, Michigan State University was founded 150, 160 years ago. Uh, it's sort of the nation's essentially first and preeminent agricultural college. And the entire time since then, uh, Michigan State University has been working in all these climate zones with agricultural experimental stations. Um, and has been at the front end of agronomic research internationally uh, for a, over a century and a half. And between having the water and the soil and then this major research uh, institution with a century and a half of well-documented records uh, of, of varietal trials and, and different things that they've tried, uh, it's sort of, uh, it's a really, we're really fortunate to be distillers uh, with such a, a great diversity of fermentable inputs just at our fingertips. Yeah, I mean, just a couple that I wanted to point out, um, in addition, of course, to the grains that you guys are uh, growing, distilling throughout the state, uh, of course, the cherries, as you mentioned, uh, Montmorency are usually the ones that get the most play, but there are a couple of different varieties. That's the one that's used for all the competitions and the dried cherries and the chocolate. And it's really good stuff. Um, I know right around now is a good, it's a little, yeah, right around now is about about harvest time, right, or a little after harvest time. It's a little mm. little behind, yeah. A little behind, yeah. yeah. Um, but just delicious stuff, and then um, apples as well. And 
as someone who's come from a state who's also kind of known for being an Apple state, um, you know, it, it amazed me because I thought about when, Ari, as you mentioned, I was also going to Kentucky. You'd like to go down to Kentucky. I am now going to go to Kentucky at least once or twice a year <laughs> going forward. Uh, and when I was there, the first place I visited actually was Copper and Kings. So I started my whiskey journey with a brandy distillery. And uh, they made a big deal about talking about their apple brandy being 15 to 18 varietals of Michigan apples, a mix of, you know, distilling and culinary apples. And then they also had a bottle your own experience where there was a, a barrel of a single apple used. It was a heritage cider brand of apple or strain, I should say, not brand of apple. That was what I ended up going home with, because which is so damn good. But again, from Michigan. Um, so in throughout this injury, there are a lot of aspects of Michigan agronomics and agriculture that really spread out from the state. And um, what's the positive term for metastasized? The, um, there is one. I proliferate. There we go. I'm, <laughs> I'm str struggling for words. It's a Saturday. We're working on it. Um, but... <laughs> you know, proliferate throughout the States uh, and even internationally. So uh, with that, um, so the alcohol factory itself, let's dive in a little bit there. So where is, so you said it's the stone's throw from the 45th parallel, halfway from the equator in the North Pole and lots of temperature fluctuations. Um, with all of that considered, you know, how did, how did stills and the, fermentation how did the let's say grain to barrel part of things have it to be designed to fit that climate structure um i think especially looking at our still um when we bought the still we decided to get a hybrid still um which i think was a super super smart decision um because we can configure it basically any which way that we can we desire to run things right so um like the little alembic still that ari has sitting back there we can we can run that thing alembic um we can engage columns rectify spirits so really we have an entirely configurable piece of machinery that we really can produce whatever type of spirit we want to off of it um you know i think Lots of temperature swings are always always really good for barrels. Lots of lots of pushing and pulling in and out of that wood, right? Um, kind of helps the maturing process there quite a bit. Um, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. In an integrated botanical basket, uh, which yep. we use regularly, trays which engage and disengage. It's uh, we wanted the like Colin said. Um, still with maximum flexibility in terms of uh, style. So everything from alembic to highly rectified, uh, we can produce spirits and blend spirits, essentially even with the same mash bill. Uh, you can finish some of it alembically and some of it through a column and, and create a style that's in the middle. And I think, I think, again, going back to, you know, having limitless possibilities with agriculture here, I think we wanted to cast a pretty wide net and, and be able to capture any which given one of those in any way we choose so that makes sense and the looking at the hybrid still just in, in pictures i didn't quite catch which uh 
which brand it was. It looked like a Carl, but I couldn't. I wasn't quite yep. sure. It is, it is a Carl. It is a Carl. Yeah, yeah, those are just they're those are just known for their configurability and everyone I hear who uses it or has used it is just like, damn, that thing, you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> it's, it's a great still. It really is. Yeah. 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 We really love it. So at Michigan state, Christian Carl used to come in the, the company, uh, Carl used to come in uh, about four times a year and mm -hmm. run these weekend workshops and folks would fly in from all over the country, aspiring distillers um, and take these workshops. It's actually how I met Dr. Bergman because I took one of the workshops and then, uh, when I when I got to the workshop and, they, and the the folks from Germany from Christian Carl were there, uh, Alexander and Nikas, they uh, uh, they explained that the style of still that was being used in Michigan State had at the time four different Christian Carl stills, different sizes and configurations. Uh, Michigan State was almost like a de facto showroom uh, for Christian Carl, and a lot of the folks that came and took the um, the the weekend courses having learned on a Christian Carl went out and bought one, right? Um, but it turned out it was a really great fit for Michigan in particular because we wanted that flexibility of configuration. Um, but the still was originally designed essentially as a brandy still, uh, a, a rustic German uh, brandy still, which we essentially scaled up uh, to make it the, the size so we can run whiskey matches on it. But it's, uh, it's great at making brandies, rum, we can make vodka, we can make gin with the integrated botanical basket, um, and certainly brandies as well. Always love when I throw something out there and I get that one right. Sorry, I'm, that's a humble brag, but I'm really <laughs> getting to know the still types real well from, from pictures, so I'm happy to got that one. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So, you know, diving into that, <clears throat> the products that you are producing at Mammoth right now, um, and that's products both that you distill yourselves as well as ones that um, are sourced, uh, anything in between. Um, listeners know that this podcast has zero against sourcing. If you do it right and then and you're transparent, all, you know, assalamu alaikum, we're good with you. So <laughs> the, so I want, but I wanted to start with um, your, with a process that I noted from the website, which was in, in your blending process, which I know is skipping ahead a bit in the process. But if I read that correctly, when you distill your grains in-house, you're distilling each grain separately and then blending together. Did I read that correctly? Close, not entirely. So we, we certainly run mash bills with percentages of grain, which are milled, um, mashed, fermented, and distilled together. Uh, however, we also do run single varietals, and we also uh, love to blend product uh, that, which we've based distilled with product that we've sourced. Uh, and we're very transparent about all of that because we frankly think that uh, uh, distilling some component and then, then having the availability of going out and buying perhaps a heavily aged component, which has characteristics that we otherwise wouldn't be able to incorporate into a finished spirit. Um, that, that's in service of, of, of what goes into the bottle at the end of the day. That's in, in service of, of making uh, someone who enjoys the whiskey happy. So yeah, whether it's um, uh, barrels which we have sourced and, and possibly finished in, in unique ways, uh, products that we make ourselves or products that are a hybrid of the two, which we've blended, which we're about to release uh, one that we're very excited about, actually. 
Colin, Colin took the lead on this one. I had some very recent, delicious. Um, yeah, so we're, 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 uh, we're agnostic uh, about uh, how we go into it. It's really in service of, the, of, of what goes in the bottle. And sourcing is one way of getting there. Producing from scratch is another way of getting there. Blending the two is yet another way of getting them. Um, but there are times that we're very particular about distilling ingredients separately, um, particularly when it comes to gin, um, which we which we take seriously. We have a sort of contemporary northern uh, style of of gin. Colin, you want to talk a little bit about how the, the many steps involved in uh, contemporary northern management? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to step step back real quick though too and touch on a couple things that that Ari previously said. So. Again, speaking about, you know, I've kind of been hitting this with every question a little bit and, and the many different avenues and, and the many different options, right? I think, you know, number one at Mammoth is is always quality, right? This this is definitely a quality over quantity company. Um, and so really, you know, again, we, we do things in a lot of different ways, depending on what product we're trying to produce, right? What, what are we looking to get out of this? A lot of our whiskeys are, are primarily run as traditional kind of American style mash bills where we are blending amounts and percentages of grain and mashing them, fermenting them together. Um, we have other products like our base distilled vodka where indeed we are running three individual 100% um, one type of grain mashes and then, then reintroducing those together um, at the blending phase, um, kind of keeping things separate and then again, putting them back together when it comes time to blend. Um, you know, we are, like Ari's talking about with our with our new Northern ride that we're coming out with, um, you know, blending some source distillate with base distilled distillate and then getting into our gin. Um, our gin is, is really heavily blended. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's super labor intensive, but again, we're, we're really looking to put out a quality product. Um, and I think working with, with local real ingredients without a huge R and D facility, um, you know, being able to blend is, is really integral in, in our consistency here. Um, so our gin is, it's a contemporary American kind of Northern styled gin, um, but it's a fractional gin. So, instead of putting all of our botanicals or a mix of botanicals together into the still or by maceration and then passing that through distillation to create one gin product, we take and we break that down into an individual set of distillations for our base alcohol going in. And then we break that out and take that base alcohol and redistill it either by maceration or um, vapor pass uh, distillation um, six different ways. So each each individual botanical that we use, and we use six of them, um, gets its own individual distillation um, because we've noticed that a lot of botanicals just play differently, right? So one process that may work for say juniper is probably not the right process for lavender or lemon or something like that, right? So we've found a lot of success in 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 having an individual distillation and style of distillation for each botanical just based on the flavor profiles that we're trying to pull out of each individual ingredient um, 
gets its own process and its own distillation. So we have six different processes and six different distillations just in the, um, in the botanical side of our gin. Um, but again, being a small batch distilled kind of place, consistency is really hard to achieve. Again, especially if you're working with real natural ingredients, right? Without any real ability to, to you know, put those in a machine and see exactly what's in them. You know, you're gonna have changes. So by doing those with their own process each time, we're able to kind of keep stuff separate and get the best out of what we want and then reintroduce them together at the time of blending. So if something's more potent than it was previously in a batch, we're able to kind of account for that in our blend, um, which really, really helps us be consistent here. And I, I think it also helps us produce a super exceptional gin. Um, I think we often put whiskey, whiskey right at the forefront of what we do as a company. But, you know, I think one of the products that I think people are most blown away um, about at Mammoth it is our gin because it, it really has legs of its own to stand on, honestly. And I, I think that's very process oriented. I'm gonna have to try the gin. Comes out of, yeah, well, that comes out of this, <clears throat> again, there were, this was an actual experiment that was publicly funded thanks to the taxpayers in Michigan, uh, at Michigan State University, which was evaluating gin botanicals using different distillation methods. So if you took uh, juniper, and you uh, let it sit in ethanol, say at 100 uh, proof, for 48 hours, and then distilled it, how would it taste? Do that at 24 hours, how would it taste? Do that at 12 hours, how would it taste? Do that again, but uh, run the juniper through a mill first to extract even more oils. And then compare those different versions of a juniper fraction with juniper fra with, uh, with a, a, a vapor distilled juniper fraction, meaning uh, the juniper never sits in the alcohol and gets heated up. Hot vapor, hot ethanol, vapor passes through it. Those are all going to give you very different styles of the, ju uh, of the juniper component, right? And going through that process with sage, which is grown <laughs> at the factory. We have a gin farm, we have a gin garden um, for some of our botanicals and, and having gone through many experiments of what is the distillation technique that's going to capture the character of this botanical that we're trying to go after in this particular spirit, um, it's a long process, but it's, uh, it, we feel it makes for the best product. Throwing all the botanicals into, uh, into the, uh, the pot still together, you can have really nice sort of, you can have really nice gins. A lot of gins are made that way. We, we call it the crock pot method. You can have a really great dinner in a crock pot. Uh, sometimes you want a composed dish. Uh, and you want to go to a restaurant and you want the fish to be fried and you want the, uh, the, uh, the, the beans to be steamed and something else to be sautéed. And you want these different production styles because on a composed dish, that's what works really well. And our gin is a little bit more like a composed dish than a, a crock pot. Yeah, I, I definitely would want to taste that because I am into gins. I do like gin quite a bit, particularly as you're talking about when it's... Uh, one is a different production production method, but also features botanicals that are native to the area. Yep. You know, basically, I think about it to be a gin, you got to have the juniper at some level, and beyond that, you know, open range. Uh, and I I love gins that are particularly that love that. Let's try that again. I love gins that really showcase the area in which these botanicals are grown, 
and you know, I was thinking about it as you were describing the fractional process. The only other distillery that I can think of off the top of my hand that is doing gin that way that I know of is um, Fort Hamilton here in New York City. Is they're doing a also a new American style gin. Uh, there's a whole story with the Battle of, of Brooklyn and how it got started because the British soldiers destroying watermelons. So there's watermelon and watermelon rind in the uh, in the gin as well as uh, lemon, angelica root, some of the more traditional herbs and spices as well. But um, Alex, the founder of Fort Hamilton, the guy who does all the distilling and is the mad scientist behind it said, basically in different words, the exact same thought though, <laughs> that different botanicals, different fruits, different elements of it behave differently. You're gonna react differently. So he's doing these at different temperatures, at different, concentrations and i gotta say that was one of the best gins that i have had uh, ever honestly was was the one from fort hamilton so i will have to grab a bottle of mammoths and side by side because that's if you put that much effort into a gin it should be noted like you said you can throw everything in a basket you can make plenty of good gin out of it 99 percent of the more than that is <laughs> made that way <laughs> You know, most gin is made that way and you get a lot of good gins, but if you're putting that much effort into a clear spirit, that's never going to see oak, unless you're doing a barrel age that you want to talk about, um, then, you know, it's, it's worth talking about. It's worth trying. It's, uh, if the gin is primarily used in our tasting rooms, it's not a heavily distributed gin. So that's even the level of that level of complexity and dedication to quality, uh, is how we treat the cocktail programs uh, at our tasting rooms. And yeah, I think it's it's a it's a pretty big vein that runs runs through the company. And it, again, it's it's quality over quantity. We'll we'll go at you know again we'll talk about rose and rye, but you know we'll go any length to to go out there and and find the most unique thing and you know go through any process, labor intensive or not to. To capture it how it should be captured so if you're gonna if you're gonna do it it's worth doing right and and going all in so i think you know from cocktail program down to agriculture it, it's it's a big theme at mammoth and i think just to uh, to circle around to your other whiskey products as well both you know in-house source blended all of it uh a product or a process that i really wanted to talk about too is your integration period and proofing process because um, this was particularly thrown out uh, regarding the borrowed time product line um, it was alluded to in the in the woolly lines as well in the northern rye but um, particularly in the borrowed time the 12 year old and the 16 year old that you slow proof use a long integration method in a stainless steel so completely inert uh, container to really let things mellow and blend and you know taste right uh the and i i want to set this up with a little bit more context in that the on one hand letting it sit in a vat in an inert vat for a time is uh not usually done let's say um to me that reminds me a lot of you know shochu and awamori production in japan rather than whiskey production, which even when you're 
letting it sit. It's usually still in barrels or some kind of large container. Uh, and the second part is the slow proofing, which I did not know was such a hot button issue, <laughs> but has clearly become one, as I have mentioned it over the past couple of podcasts, where some are very strongly for the slow proofing. You know, I think Santa Fe Spirits call them like if you throw that water in the whiskey, it's going to saponify, it's going to break apart, and you're going to lose a lot of the character. On the other hand, you've got uh, Ian Stersman from MGP or Ross and Squibb talking about the Remus repeal series, where I asked directly, I said, look, what's your proofing process here? Do you slow proof? He's like, no, no, we, the water just goes in. And it's, it's intriguing, it's frustrating, it's um, all things like that. Because honestly, both of those products at two ends of the spectrum are both in my top five new whiskeys that I've tried this year. And, you know, they're, and they're looking at this method that seems so basic, but they are as far apart as you could possibly be in terms of that. So, so why, so in, in your case, in Mammoth's case, why are you slow proofing? How do you slow proof? And, and how, why do you decide to do that instead of throwing the water in? I know that's a lot. So, you, but... you know, that's, that's great. It, it, Ian's amazing. Uh, we know Ian pretty well uh, from Rossens. He's, he's great. He's doing great work. And whatever's going on at MGP is super interesting and has the eyes of the whiskey world watching to, to sort that out. Um, and then also Colin Keegan. Um, his first distiller was Johnny Jeffrey, the great Johnny Jeffrey, uh, who... Uh, was essentially hired me into the distillery at Michigan State while he was there getting his master's thesis. And Colin Keegan was one of the folks that did come up to East Lansing. Uh, and uh, uh, Michigan State helped develop some of his products. And then Johnny Jeffrey went down to Santa Fe to work. And uh, actually, we at Mammoth, prior to having a distillery when we were engineering our gin, went down to Santa Fe. And we prototyped our gin at Santa Fe Spirits. Uh, and spent some time down there with Colin and with Johnny Jeffrey. And so it's a, it's a very small industry. And um, we've had the privilege of working with, with both Ian and, uh, and, and, and the Keegans. Um, and we do have uh, a philosophy that's a little bit more like what Johnny Jeffrey and Colin Keegan uh, do it at Santa Fe, which is just a little bit slower. We take time. Mammoth is all about taking all the time you need to do things right, right? And that comes from the gin, comes from our agricultural practices, and it extends to just about everything. Now, that being said, I feel like saponification, which is generally the rationale given to slow proofing, right? It's the idea that if you add water too quickly, fatty acids inside of the spirit will saponify, turn into soap, and create these soapy like uh flavor notes which which are really dominant in small quantities even in like very minute quantities it cuts right through other things and you can taste it that is much more common in uh pot distilled spirits than column distilled spirits uh pot distilled spirits oftentimes will bring over with them uh more uh, fatty acids which are the things they're gonna saponify um 
And uh, what what we do is as much a nod uh, art to to old world traditions, alembic traditions. Uh, most of the borrowed times, column distilled that we're talking about. So there's very little risk of saponification. Whereas many of the spirits, many of the um, whiskeys which we make in house and base distill are more alembic uh, in style and have a little bit more of a, a thread of saponification. That being said, uh, it's really interesting. I've, I've tasted uh, spirits that have saponified uh, and it's kind of like tasting a wine that has been corked. You can, like it is off and it, it doesn't taste right. And once you go through the process of making whiskey, uh, you know, from start to finish, letting it age, and then, you know, right before bottling, you proof it, and it doesn't taste like you want in the bottle. You feel like you've wasted half a decade. It's a very, very difficult feeling. And one way of not feeling that way after being traumatized with that feeling is you just do everything really slow, and you create protocols that you're going to take time. Now, I don't know if there's been any scientific papers recently about saponification. Um, and, you know, uh, proofing rates, how many how many liters per minute are being added to however much alcohol and at what temperature. I taste in saponified spirits. I think it doesn't happen very often, but if it happens once, that's way too much because you've wasted so much time and effort and money. So we just do things slow. Yeah. Makes I think sense. we also take, oh, sorry to interrupt. No, no, I just, I just, just say my sense. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I think we, you know, I think here at Mammoth, uh, we also, you know, we're again, a pretty whiskey forward company, but I think we do already touched on, you know, old world stuff. Uh, I think we do take a lot of cues from the brandy world, especially being in, in such a fruit producing area. Um, so, you know, in, in brandy, they talk about the art of slow distillation where they'll take in even before introducing a distillate to a barrel to let it sit you know in a glass demijohn with the top you know loosely secured on for you know up to two years before it even enters a barrel and then you know in that barrel they're continually slowly but surely topping it up with water kind of you know so i think i think there's a lot of cues being being in a fruit region um and looking up to, I, I think, you know, Ari, myself, Chad, the owner, a, a lot of us are not so secretly really, really inspired and into Brandy quite a bit. Um, so I, I think fruit really, really kind of does it, does it for us. So I think, I think there's a lot of old world traditions and techniques that we, we kind of look up to in a lot of those regards. And, and I will agree with Ari, you know, when you do have something saponify, it sucks. Um, I have a barrel of apple brandy that is a little bit saponified. Um, it's, it's faint, but man, it, it drives me nuts. So, you know, you, again, you spend so much, so much work and, and so much effort and labor, and then, you know, come to find out years later that because you proofed it too fast, it isn't as good as it was. So I, I completely agree with what Ari's saying. They're just, you know, there's need no need to to go fast there's there's more of a need here to to do it right and and put the best foot forward and stuff so i'd ra i'd rather have you know something good go into a bottle than be late on getting a shipment out the door you know it's 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 more important to us i think and not not mm -hmm. to say that people who don't 
you know, view saponification as, as a big thing in, in whiskeys primarily, um, is the wrong thing, but it's just kind of the tack that we take. I mean, the, the distinction made between a pot still versus a column still and, and the risks of saponification in one versus the other is a consideration. Again, I hadn't heard before. And, and in talking about, again, those extreme examples of, let's say, Santa Fe and uh, MGP slash Ross and Squibb, of course, those are going to be massively different. And so it could work for both of them with their own setups. Santa Fe uses a pot still, a Christian Carl yeah. pot still. Exactly. Ross exactly. and Squibb uses a column still. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Colin, to your point about it, those, you know, those, really that really small amount of the apple brandy um in talking to people across the whiskey industry and, and brandy industry i had heard that there was one flavor compound that couldn't be blended out and that was mustiness and it sounds like soapiness or sponification is the second one that just like you have to put such a volume in to blend it out that it's just not worth it anymore <laughs> so mm-hmm. we'll we'll add that to the list of things to avoid for sure because i don't like soapy whiskey or soapy brandy i don't know about you not, not many do no although if if you have to wash someone's mouth out with soap if you're going real old school um there are worse ways to do it than with apple brandy so <laughs> it's true that's true it could be a marketing slogan i don't know if it'll go anywhere but you know <laughs> it could work all right so um of course, you know, there, there's so much going on at Mammoth itself. Um, again, aside from the Rose and Rye, which we'll get into in just a minute, that I, I really did want to make sure we took time to look at these other products because uh, they're they are worthy of their own time and their own uh, dedication. So um, I know Ari and Colin, you've been generous enough to send a few samples my way. Uh, I will, you know, be tasting those and, and posting uh, tasting notes and reviews and stories about them. And I really look forward to digging in even deeper and finding more questions to ask about them to, uh, you know, add to the audience's enjoyment. I want every review to be something where they learn something. And that starts with guys like you answering questions. So thanks so much for that. Uh, One that I think we're really interested in you trying, because you've, you've mentioned that you have a particular interest in American single malt. Yes. Yeah. And we're, we're very excited to have you try uh, it's it's fairly young. It's not in the bottle yet. We pulled a sample from the barrel. Um, uh, a single malt whiskey, which which we've made uh, in collaboration with with our farmer and maltster Allison Babb from Empire Malt. She's incredible. Um, she farms. Uh, she has built, welded uh, a kiln and everything that you need to to malt. Um, she and her husband have built a malting facility, and then she goes out and hunts for Great Lakes Peak and uh, smokes the malt over Great Lakes Peak, which is very different than Scottish Peak, than its salinated high iodine cousin. Uh, the Great Lakes is a major peak resource. Uh, both Northern Michigan, Wisconsin, all of these areas have, uh, it's, it's just a different type of peak. And what we found is as you go further, further down in the bog, if you take core samples at one foot and then two feet and then three feet, vastly different chemical composition of the peat, different character profile. And uh, the first foot of a bog, that first foot of peat might be 
50 to 100 years old. If you get down to the next layer, it could you know, be 250 years old. By the time you get three feet down in a bog, that peat has been there for a thousand years uh, in anaerobic conditions, generating all kinds of interesting flavor and character. And so um, we've had a couple of folks up north uh, tasting from, from some of those single malt, uh, Great Lakes, Lake Michigan peated single malt barrels uh, who have been really surprised by the, by the character imparted by, by that unique malt or that unique uh, peat. Yeah, I am incredibly excited to try that. Uh, I, I really am. The idea of, I mean, just like you said, I'm, I like any American single malt. I want to try them all anyway. But this idea of peat can come from anywhere that fits the climactic profile it can come from i mean the only other i think this is great lakes peat and i i'll explain why i say i think in a second um that i've tried so far is uh the whiskey witch from spirits of french lick uh, as he said alan bishop said it was um he wasn't sure exactly where the peat came from but it was indiana northern indiana and i have a feeling it was probably on or close to the great lakes um, which reminds me, I have to follow up with him about that because I, I just got to know. I got to know. So um, it's as long as it wasn't Gary, Indiana. I hear the Gary, the Pete and Gary, Indiana. It's not not the best people. Just a, for a little further south, like it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the uh, I in trying this, I don't know if you've had a chance to try that product or not. And um, if not, I'm. I'm happy to share some with you, but uh, I don't know what the hell to write for these tasting notes. And I've said that multiple times in the podcast. I just don't know. It's it's so different. And to, to the point that there's no comparison, you know, like the, the only thing I can put it in the same realm as is another thing that I have no comparison for, which was um, the Green Angus malt from Copper Seed Distilling here in New York because nobody else is making a single malt from 100% unkilned barley. So it tastes like nothing else. And try, and so trying to contextualize that is very difficult. Right, right. So, well, we'd love to have you and Alan and anyone that, that feels like coming up to, schlepping up to Northern Michigan during the muddy season. That's when we go peat hunting, during the muddy season, muddy season depending on the weather that year it can be long or short, uh, but it's in the spring. And what we do is we go out there and we find feet, cut it out, let it cure for about six months. And then later in the fall after the harvest, so when we can start the germination process and then halt it with that peat, which had been harvested six to eight months earlier. Do you find you get similar, uh, similar adsorption levels? that you get in a single malt, a peated single malt from, let's say, Scotland or elsewhere? Um, Not sure. Good. We should check out the parts per million. We can, we can, do, the, we can do it. Uh, we can look into it. We also sometimes make a heavily peated fraction of whiskey as well as an unpeated fraction of, of whiskey and then, and then blend. Makes sense. Prior to Maryland. Yeah. Pete's, Pete's another flavor that you really can't quite blend out, but you can manage it very well. And it, that's at least a desirable flavor. Yeah. yeah, more desirable for sure. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. 
They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. This month's focus, their October distillery dive, is distillery number five. This famous lowland distillery will show you something completely different, and you've probably never had before. This isn't your floral and fruity space side, but it's also not that smoky, sometimes medicinal, and maritime isla. It's truly unique and in a category and region all its own. The distillery dive bottlings were announced on October 11th, so you might still find some available. If not, keep an eye out. There are always more bottles coming from this distillery and others, and always new journeys to explore. There are also currently five fall bundles available, packaging multiple bottles together from sometimes the same and sometimes different distilleries into a discounted set for you to discover. Remember to use the promo code WRP for 20% off your annual membership, and you can visit the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society website to sign up and order via the link in the show notes. Glenallachie Whiskey is a true space cider whose full name means Valley of the Rocks in Gaelic. Led by master distiller Billy Walker, Glenallachie put out some of the most interesting single-cast bottlings in the entire region this year. This month, for November, we've got three releases to talk about. First up is the Glenallachie 2010 Cask 4635. This U.S. exclusive single cask is finished in a Napa Valley wine barrel for three years. This non-show filtered bottling rolls in at a hefty 59.9% ABV and comes with a hand-numbered bottle and display box. There are 306 700 milliliter bottles available and again exclusive only to the United States. The second release is cast 7666, barreled in 2009 and bottled in 2022. This 12 year single cask was finished in a Madeira barrique for just about three years and carries a 59.2% ABV. This also comes with a hand numbered gift box and bottle and there are just 298 bottles available. The third bottle, and perhaps the most interesting one for me, is cask 3713. This 13-year single cask is finished in a sauterne barrel for three years and bottled at 58.2% ABV. I found recently I love sauterne finishes. It's an underused white wine, and I'm really excited to see what more companies do with it. This one is no exception. With just 291 bottles available, this one's going to go quickly, so grab yours before you miss out. You can check out more details about these U.S. exclusive bottlings through the links in the show notes, and talk to your local store to make sure you never miss out on the newest Glenallachy single barrels. If you need help finding these bottles in particular, shoot me an email. Happy to help you experience these incredible single cask offerings. Thank you again to Impex Beverages for being our presenting sponsor. And now, back to the show. Um, all right, so if you gents are ready, I think it is time for us to jump into Rose and Rye. I'd love to. All right, here we go. So um, before we get started, I just want to set a little bit of context. So I, in doing the research for this episode, especially around the Rose and Rye portion, um, I want to shout out uh, John Hughes at Embellish Pod, who um, our you and Doug spoke to. Um, I want to shout out also, uh, make sure I have everyone that I uh, listened to and reached out to, um, just just a number of different uh, podcasts and and such who really Oh, of course, Alan Bishop at Distillers Talk for host, hosting the Rose and Rye Roundtable earlier this year. 
um, as these were really invaluable resources. So I'm going to include links to those episodes as well in the show notes so people are, can listen if they're more interested in the Rose and Rye. You want to hear things that uh, we probably won't get to because there's you can spend hours and days talking about Rosen. So um, I won't try to reinvent the wheel here. I'm going to try to get a little deeper. So we'll see. So thank you to all of those podcasts and shows. So let's start the Rosen Rye timeline at 1910 ish. So can we, can we go back like just a couple of years before that? Like yeah, yeah, a handful like, of years before that. Yeah, if it's a handful of years, that that's totally fine. But let's let's start with when, like the the start of Rosen Rye, even before it was named such. Right. Well, we should say on, on our website, mammothdistilling.com, we have compiled a Rosen Rye timeline. Yes, which was also quite helpful for for yeah. research as well. And it's and it's interactive, and you can click on links, and things open up. And, and we're really proud of it. Um, and, uh, and, and just as a little bit of context, as Colin was saying earlier, we're talking about Chad and Tracy and the, the vision of Mammoth. This is a Northern company. And one of the things that we're doing is exploring Northern flavors. What are the flavors that are available around us, whether it's from grape or grain or fruit or, or blossoms, right? We have these incredible apple and cherry blossoms that are incredibly aromatic and you capture them at the right time for that aroma. Um, so we're always looking for the flavors of the North. Uh, and Colin also alluded that, that we love wine and we love beer and we know the difference between different types of hops. We know different varietals, right? And we know that, uh, that different types of grapes grown in different regions produce different types of character. And it's always been shocking that in the spirits industry, Varietal is not discussed like it is in the brewing industry and winemaking. It's super weird. And uh, in general, the reason for that, we believe, is because of the homogenization and consolidation that happened after Prohibition, where it didn't matter where it's coming from. It doesn't matter where the ingredients are coming from. Corn is corn, rye is rye, barley is barley. Of course, barley is not barley to brewers. They can very much tell the difference between different types and even um, of barley. Even distillers in Scotland understand that there's different uh, virtues of different types of uh, varietals of barley. So we felt like, number one, we're a little bit behind in the spirits industry, at least in America, when it comes to truly understanding uh, and being able to select the quality, right? Uh, and so that took us on a little bit of a wild goose chase, which, uh, which, which led us to Rose and Rye. We, we were wondering... You know, as a northern company, rye is sort of all around us. We grow a lot of rye in northern Michigan. Prior to corn and soybean subsidies, uh, 1910, 1920, Michigan was the largest producer of rye in the country. Michigan was the number one exporter of rye in the U.S. Kentucky was one of the main places that Michigan sent rye. We have all of the agricultural records. We know where essentially every bushel that wasn't smuggled out went. And they were going through a lot of distilleries and distilleries we go back and we look at their, uh, their grain manuals and uh, we look at newspapers um, and, and uh, search for um, uh, uh, grain advertisements, what grain is showing up in Lexington this week. And over and over again, you would find me specified by name 
usually you don't see Michigan. Usually, usually you don't see a varietal um, when you're talking about whiskey. But, but for whatever reason, Rosenrye, we found out why, but we kept on seeing Rosenrye come up in the historical um, record. And uh, anytime you see Michigan next to grain, you can be pretty sure because of Michigan Agricultural College, which turned into Michigan State University, that there's going to be a, a good record of it. So when we learned that rosin rye is essentially ubiquitous in American whiskey as the primary flavor and grain of bourbon and also as the main source of, of rye whiskey, and we saw that the name Michigan was tied to rosin rye, it was pretty clear what we needed to do, which was go to the archives at Michigan State University and, and learn about this, what is rosin rye, how did it show up in Michigan? And... Uh, all of that information was sitting right there in the library. Um, I'm unaware of any other grain varietal that is as well documented historically as rosin rye. We know when it arrived in the United States. We know when it was planted and where and how much. We know when the first bushels left Michigan and where they went. Um, and we know that, again, by 1920, rosin rye had made Michigan the largest producer of rye in the country by quite a wide margin. Uh, and the story of Rosen Rye, and this becomes very clear by the firsthand writings of Dr. Frank Sprague, who was the head agronomist at Michigan State University, who took on Rosen Rye as his pet project. At Michigan, at the time, Sprague was already doing experiments on, on rye, and he would have known that many of the best pedigreed ryes would have come from Russia. And a Russian student arrives in his office one day in 1906. And so Sprague takes the opportunity to ask Joseph Rosen, do you mind having your dad send some rye to, to me to evaluate? Uh, Joseph Rosen does just that. And in 1907, a package of rye without a name shows up at Sprague's office. By that time, Joseph Rosen is already gone. He has left Michigan and he's moved on to get his PhD in, uh, in Minnesota. Um, but Frank Sprague takes this unnamed rye, names it Rosen because he needs a name for it, and it came from Joseph Rosen, and he puts it in the ground at the Michigan State or at the, at the Agricultural Experimental Station, and it completely outperforms all of the local ryes, which were already some of the superior ryes in the United States. But this Rosen rye that came from Russia outperformed them. Uh, we know it because I, it's Saturday, so I get to read all my old agricultural books. But every, I'm holding a book, it's about 800 pages of uh, old agricultural records. Just about every land grant school in the country, including Penn State, Iowa State, Kansas State, Michigan State, all of the old agricultural schools have massive archives of grain programs that they did 100 years ago before corn and uh, soybean subsidies. And these are like gold to distillers. This will let you know what grows well, and in many cases, what you can expect in terms of yield and sometimes flavor profile. So um, by digging into these old research, by digging into these old files, we learned that uh, first Rosen went into the ground in 1908. By 1912, uh, Sprague had essentially completed what he considered his uh, evaluation. And Rosen Rye was off the charts. It way outperformed everything. At that point, uh, 
Michigan founded the Michigan Crop Improvement Association, which is uh, essentially a, a group of Michigan Agricultural College professors working with the leaders of farming communities around Michigan to help decide how to run the agriculture in the state. And Rosen Rye was passed around widely um, and it was planted widely. By the end of 1918, there were a million bushels um, and then it just exponentially hockey sticked growth after that. Um, 1918, the first bushels of Rosen Rye are sent to New York, Pennsylvania, elsewhere. We know the exact numbers because it's we have the records. I mean, it's very weird. You have this varietal that that kind of took over the the whiskey industry, um, but it's unlike so many parts of the whiskey industry. It this is not like uh, some story passed down from generation to generation. We actually have laboratory records from the first day it arrived, and everything is completely, you know, uh, fastidiously written down by Dr. Sprague and Dr. Cox and some of the other folks at Michigan Agricultural College. Um, it finds its way into Shenley brands around 1924. Shenley at that time was the largest distillery conglomerate in the country. Obviously this is in the, the heart of prohibition. Um, you can find, uh, but they were making medicinal whiskey and they were laying down whiskey that would be released after prohibition. Um, and that's actually how we got to know about Rosen Rye. It was these post-prohibition advertisements, uh, full-page advertisements in magazines like um, Vanity Fair's December 1934 issue, uh, saying Michigan Rosen Rye is the most flavorful grain Mother Earth produces. And it was only Rosen Rye used in this bottled and bond rye whiskey. Um, that kind of sent us, down, actually, that advertisement sent us down the rabbit hole. Um, so, yeah, Rosen Rye... Uh, became ubiquitous. It performed nearly every single uh, domestic rye varietal and mm -hmm. companies from Shenley to Seagram's to Beam and everyone in between uh, was not only using Rosen Rye, but telling the consumer that Rosen Rye was used in the spirits. This is, I, I honestly, I have tried, I can't find very many advertisements from the past 150 years of any whiskey. Um, advertising grain varietal, really until the modern day when you start learning about Bloody Butcher. That's kind of, in many cases, when it came back. Until then, you know, rye was rye and corn was corn. But there was this period where the big companies thought that they needed to tell the consumer that Rosen Rye is being used in this whiskey because it would have been associated with a higher quality input. And I have to ask, because I don't, I think John asked it, but I'm not sure if I caught the answer. But uh, how did you find that 1934 Vanity Fair ad? Was that after the research or was that at the beginning of the research? That, that was the portal. That was the portal. Okay. So even more so then, why were you reading a 1934 Vanity Fair? <laughs> I, was, I was looking into the history of prohibition in Detroit. I wanted to know about the role of Michigan during prohibition and so I was doing internet searches of archived magazines, uh, typing in things like Michigan and whiskey, Michigan rye, Detroit bootlegging, and putting together search terms. And one of the things that came up amongst a lot of articles and political cartoons, was a lot of documentation of, of smuggling in Detroit, particularly by the Purple Gang. Um, the, the, they call them the Little Jewish Navy or... Uh, or the Purple Navy, just a treacherous bunch of boys uh, in, in, in Detroit. Um, 
but one of the hits that came up didn't have anything to do with them. It was a, it was a full page advertisement from Vanity Fair's Christmas issue in 1934, which essentially would have been the first Christmas issue, right? Post prohibition. So what is a company like Shenley, the biggest spirits company in the United States at the time, you know, you have got a full page advertisement, one of the biggest magazines in the country. What are you putting on it? What do you want your customer to know? And they wanted the customer to know about Michigan Rose and Rye being the most flavorful kernel of grain. So I thought, so we thought that uh, if, if Vanity Fair and Shenley are talking about Michigan Rose and Rye, again, if such a thing exists, it's in the Michigan Agricultural College archives. And lo and behold, extensive records were kept. So that was the that was the rabbit hole. That was the portal. That makes that makes a little bit more sense because I, I just couldn't get past the fact of why was he looking at 1934 Vanity But that makes a lot much a, a lot more sense. If you want to know what was <laughs> right, well, if you want to know like what a dist- I was wondering if you were a distiller during prohibition, right? What are you making and for whom? Right. And so one of the ways you can figure out what someone was making in 1927 or 1928 is by seeing what comes out in 1934. So I was looking at advertisements right from the the passage, you know, from from the um, repeal of prohibition. What are the companies advertising as soon as the floodgates open? And that was like the heyday of Rose and Rye. And there would be, I mean, as you said, there would be plenty of whiskey advertisement at that point because they want to get sales back up. I'm sure they weren't hurting for sales necessarily after prohibition ended, but they want to get sales back up. You still have a year before uh, the use of straight goes onto the label in 1935. Um, But even then, I mean, you're right. I mean, putting in the Christmas issue of Vanity Fair. You want people to know about it. Yeah. Right. And that would have been the best way. It, we're like brewers, right? They can make a beer a year, you know, three months before and then have an advertiser for it. But this was a bottled and bond rye, right? This was Shenley saying, this is our most elite product. This is our halo brand, as they'd say now. Right. Um, and so that gives you an indication, because it was at least five years old, or it was at least four years old, of what was being produced in the 20s. And that's what we're really looking after. So you, you can look at the post-prohibition advertisements to understand what was what were people thinking during prohibition. And I've put kind of artificial uh, artificial blocks of time along this timeline, um, partially from the timeline that you created on Mammoth's website of the timeline of Rosen Rye. So you got this prologue of the Rye, you know, Joseph Rosen comes over. The rye seeds arrive, he's gone, but Dr. Sprague brings them on. So that's the prologue. Second, the first real part of the trilogy is that golden age, the golden era. So it starts, it, it takes over Michigan. It starts being exported to Pennsylvania, New York, as you were saying. Uh, we know that it's uh, particularly popular in, in Western Pennsylvania. Um, and all, I mean, I should say all the way to Bucks County. So all of Pennsylvania, but especially Western Pennsylvania, and then it's it expands nationwide. And this is just reiterating what you said. It goes into Seagram's use, Michter's, Shenley, all the big boys of the era. Um, and then, you know, the second era being the 50s to the 70s, which is kind of the decline to temporary death of the of the variety. And then the third being the revival. So 
sticking with that first era, um, Dr. It, Dr. Sprague knew from the writings immediately that this was, even for a rye, a promiscuous grain. Like, even for a rye, this was just really apt to hybridize and cross-pollinate. And um, so rye itself being already at that level, it seems like it didn't take him very long to figure out, oh, I've got to isolate this stuff because otherwise we're going to lose it very quickly. Um, so in terms of, I know this, this period also was when it first went on to South Manitou Island and there are reasons for that as well. So the, I guess the question I have about this is, um, is there, is there something about this particular strain that is a reason why it is so promiscuous and wants to cross-pollinate so easily? As far as we can tell, it's that it, it's, it's not necessarily more promiscuous than other varietals of rye. And promiscuous is a term that comes up over and over again in the old literature, which I think is sure. great. Um, it's that it was in its pure state, if you can keep if you can keep it pure and keep it from cross-pollinating with other varietals of rye, it far outperforms them on nearly every agronomic criteria. Uh, but once it gets cross-pollinated, um, in it it becomes like every other uh, type of rye, common rye they would call it, you know, no varietal uh, speci specified. Um, it, just, it lost what made it what made it great in the first place. And Sprague realized this quite early on. Everyone knows that rye cross pollinates, and if you want to keep a very special type of rye pure, you've got to isolate it. The question was how to isolate it. How far away does it have to be from other varietals of rye to keep a pure seed stock? And this is the crazy, I mean, like it's crazy enough that there's something like rose and rye and that folks in Pennsylvania who have been making uh, whiskey out of rye for a long time, this new rye shows up and they're like, yeah, that's what we want to use. Like that's the best proof of concept you can imagine in the whiskey industry is that like, Nobody knows rye like Pennsylvania and that they would select rose and rye is the highest praise, right? For the, for the quality of the input. Dr. Frank Sprague knew that it was going to cross pollinate and knew they had to find a place far away from everywhere else where you could keep a pure seed stock to essentially, I mean, because Michigan was heavily invested in rose and rye at this point, tax money, people, farmers, you know, Michigan was making a big deal out of the fact that it was the largest producer of rye in the country. And this is where the story gets really straight crazy. And this is where folks like uh, like Colin and, and, and Doug at the Alcohol Factory and, and Matt Hayes come into play. There was a nationwide search to find the best place to grow rose and rye, like literally a nationwide search. And the best environment that was found was a little uh, desolate island out you know, 10 miles out in Lake Michigan that just had a handful of subsistence farmers living on it. And those farmers were convinced by, by, jo by a guy named uh, Joseph Cox, another professor at MSU, that if they banded together and grew rose and rye, that they could be the seed source, the sole seed source for certified rose and rye for the entire country. 
And uh, these subsistence farmers understood that that was a great opportunity for them. And they actually formed a compact to drown any farmer on the island that grew a uh, rye other than Rosen. Um, and these farmers took their job very seriously. And they created the seed stock for the rest of the country out of little South Manitou Island. And the two main farms on South Manitou Island that were producing uh, rosin rye seed stock uh, was the Hutzler farm and the Beck farm. And when we learned that the Hutzler farm and the Beck farm still exist on historic South Manitou Island and had not grown rye in 60 to 70 years, um, you know, to Chad and Tracy's credit, they understood immediately, Chad and Tracy on, on Mammoth, they understood immediately what the opportunity here was. And it was to rejuvenate Michigan's agricultural heritage by bringing rose and rye back to those actual fields that supplied the rest of the country uh, 100 years ago. And not just supplied the rest of the country, uh, the commodity exchange, the farm commodity exchanges in Chicago, right? It's like the stock exchange, but it's for grain and things like that. And every year, uh, the commodity exchange would have competitions. Who's making the best corn in North America? Who creates the best rye? And there's this period between 1920 and 1930 that South Manitou Island was winning the awards for best rye over and over again, and not just the top award, but they would win the top several awards for best rye in North America. And uh, Mammoth has taken it upon itself to get Rosenseed back into those fields uh, at great pain and expense, and in some case, doctor's bills. Um, and uh, the, at the beginning, the biggest problem, of course, was you can't get Rosen rye. You can't go to the store. You can't go online and get Rosen rye. This, this, it hasn't been available in half a century. Uh, so we went to Michigan State University and, and working with Dr. Eric Olson, who's a plant breeder, who essentially has a very similar position to what Frank Sprague had 100 years ago. Uh, through, uh, through our contacts at Michigan State University, we were able to procure 18 grams of seed from a seed bank uh, in the side of a mountain in Colorado. And then using, this is really cool, laboratories at Michigan State University, which greenhouse laboratories, we were able to put those 18 grams through multiple growth cycles in single calendar year. What that means is there's a series of greenhouses and walk-in coolers where you can plant rye and trick it into think, thinking that it's winter because it's in a walk-in cooler. You can vernalize it, they call it. And then you move it to another greenhouse, and then you move it to another greenhouse and another greenhouse. You can, you can essentially get three annual plantings in in a single calendar year. In doing that, we were able to take the 18 grams of seed up to quantities which we could plant on South Manitou Island um, uh, in a much shorter period of time than Sprague was able to do 100 years ago. I'm curious, too, and this is something that I, I was thinking about when uh, you were talking to to John on Embellish Pod about the particular organoleptic positives, the higher yield, the easier processing. Um, these are also things mentioned by Maggie Kimbrell in her article on you guys in the first Rose and Rye Day this past June. I'll reference her a little bit later, but in in some cases today, and I'm speaking very generally of agriculture, we favor uh, genetic diversity because the genetic diversity protects against certain pathogens, against certain pests and other things. However, there's another 
side, especially with heirloom varietals and things that you're trying to keep genetically pure, where you want to keep them pure. So you don't want that genetic diversity. You want to make sure it's not cross-breeding and cross-pollinating. So I guess both back when Rosen was first being grown and today when it's being revived, um, is there fear of particular like, you know, pathogen or condition that uh, would really threaten the stock in some way? Yeah, big time, which is why we grow it in multiple places. Um, currently, we're not only growing on South Manitou Island, we're keeping a pure seed stock on South Manitou Island. We encourage people to come and visit South Manitou Island. Um, we had our first annual Rose and Rye Day, and we hope we'll have others. Uh, next one's going to be next summer. Um, but we generally grow Rose and Rye near the Lake Michigan shore, where the wind comes uh, west to east. And because of that, there's much less of a risk of contaminating pollen um, settling in the rose and rye fields. So we, we use our geography and we use our relationships with farmers that farm certain plots of land uh, in order to keep our rosin as pure as possible. Gotcha. So the, should be noted also that, uh, you know, South Manitou Island is not only 10 miles from the Michigan shore, it's uh, crosses the Manitou Passage, one of the biggest repositories of wrecks, of freight wrecks in in the Great Lakes, if not the world. Um, you know, I, I would imagine today it's a bit of a harrowing passage to go across, but back when it was first described, first discovered that South Manitou would be a great place to grow this rye and keep it pure, keep that seed stock at um, the at these two farms in particular, the Beck and the uh, Hutzler farms, but also just the island as a whole, um, was, I almost imagine these, like that sea captain that can get through a storm or anything like that. And that's who's driving the ferry back and forth because no one else can do it. You know, was there that kind of isolation and just risk going across that people were willing to take over? I think there absolutely was I it which is which is also interesting because the ferry company that we still use to this day, the captain that we take across, is the same family lineage that has been doing that for generations upon generations. Um, it's actually interesting though, um, back in the day, there was a lot more traffic going to the Manitou Islands than we see now. So actually back in, in the heyday of Rosen, there was a ton more traffic out there, um, you know, as steamships and, and things of that era were, were the way to move, um, move things around in bulk. Um, that, that was a huge stopping point. You know, it was halfway from the Straits of Mackinac down to Chicago. It was a great spot for everyone to refuel. Um, the Crescent Bay on South Manitou Island is, is um, one of the deepest naturally occurring um, ports in the Great Lakes, actually. So it's a perfect place for people to safe harbor, um, you know, reload on wood. So I think there was, there was actually a lot more traffic to the islands back then than there actually is now but and it's littered with wrecks because it's where you would want to be in a storm right right 
you see the lighthouse and you head that way and there are treacherous shores there you know the the other the south side of the island it's super shallow like where the wreck of the francisco morazon is um very very shallow very far out um but once you kind of get around this point then the the harbor opens up basically it's kind of where the you know all the all the water pushes through the manitou passage in one way um and kind of deposits in front of it and then kind of behind the island with the flow there's there's a big deep safe harbor colin sorry can you talk a little bit about your family history uh, that was gonna be my next question too because <laughs> yeah so actually um you know rosen rosen brought up a lot of a lot of research and in, in genealogy in my family um but uh, my family, I, we've all known for a long time, my family's uh, been in this area. I'm actually seventh generation farmer in Leelanau County. Um, so my family's been around since basically Michigan was a state pretty much. Um, one of the first three families to inhabit the area actually up here. Um, but it's interesting, we started, uh, we started digging really deep and it seems that um, that's, that first generation that came over um, actually immigrated and came through and, and worked on the logging camps on North and South Manitou Islands, supplying the steamships. Um, it wasn't long that they they worked in, and lived out there, that they came back to the mainland and started farming um, over there. But uh, they, the initial, initial people from my family to come to this area actually came through the islands there. Um, and then we settled in Leland, which is one of the, one of the first you know, stops off on the ship right there. Um, it's also interesting, I, I knew this before I knew that, but um, my great grandfather during World War II was in the Coast Guard um, and he actually ran the lighthouse and the, um, the Shoal lighthouse as well, um, right off the islands there. So there's been, there's been a lot of, of family connection with the island um, and, and Leland and the Fishtown area for forever, but um, it wasn't until we really got super deep into Rose and Rye, we were like, oh, and found out they actually came through the islands too. So it's it's super cool. Um, you know, it's, I get to be a little selfish because it, it you know, this is, this is an awesome uh, professional project for me, but it's also kind of a really cool heritage project for myself as well. You know, I kind of, get to continue on where generations of my family have, you know, kind of laid the land before. So it's, it's one, not only extremely awesome to be involved in this professionally, but, you know, personally, it, it takes on a lot of meaning to myself as well. You, you are the, feel, forgive the phrasing, you are another heritage stream. On, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. In the process, I mean, it's true. It's what, it's true. Uh, so just being, uh, mindful of time and I want to get there, there again, so many more things to talk about. Um, are you guys good to go a little longer? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, hope your audience members are too, cause we got some really good ones still coming up. So, uh, <laughs> so going into, so just to close out rather the, um, that first era, that golden era for Rose and Rye, um, this is something that. Uh, that Maggie Kimbrell wrote about, um, and uh, are you referenced this earlier too in these grain manuals from particular distillers? So she was writing, uh, quoting the Seagram's Distillers Grain Manual, uh, reporting that among, among other things, quote, 
Rosen type rye is preferred by distilleries as it has a larger grain, makes processing easy, making processing easier, but only when climate conditions support the high starch content, end quote. Um, and so this had me uh, questioning something, I think this was something that Doug had said on Embellish Pod. So I wanted to make sure I got this part right. But so the Seagram's grain manual is saying Rosen type rye, it's preferred. It's got the larger grain. That makes sense. It's also growing seven feet tall. Um, but when climate conditions support the high starch content, and I think on the Embellish Pod, Doug was saying that you uh, had a low starch content in the rye. And it was, it was within the context of a question about how the rye behaves in fermentation. Like you have all the same foaming problems and all of that. So I just wanted to clarify, like, are you dealing with a higher starch content or a lower starch content? And what are you aiming for? I mean, awesome I think question. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to take this one, Ari? Or? I can take a swing and then uh, if you want to <laughs> help me out afterwards. But, yeah. So um, what was a high starch content then is a low starch content now. Got gotcha. right. okay. a long way. Um, so at the time, <clears throat> 62, 63% would have been considered a high starch content. And what the Seagram's grain manual is, is essentially saying is in conditions where it can get a high starch content, which means Michigan and other like climates. And what it means is don't grow this in Kentucky. Kentucky, right. <laughs> too hot. It's too warm. Um, it's not the right environment to grow rye. So what the, ma what the manual is saying is grow it where it's cool, you know, Michigan being one of those places. Mm -hmm. Now, just yesterday, Michigan State University, along with Mammoth Distilling and, uh, and, and others, published uh, the great, our rye, our, the, the, the third installment of our rye varietal trials. So, you know, not to skip ahead too much, but right now, we're in the process, we're, we're in year three of a multi-year varietal trial. This goes back to what we were saying about distillers should understand grains in the same way that winemakers understand grapes. How do varietals act in different growing conditions, right? And so uh, you can go to my LinkedIn page or you can go to Michigan State. Uh, it, it's, it's on their uh, page right now, our agricultural extension. But we're in the process of evaluating 15 different varietals of rye grown in two different climate zones, sorry, three different climate zones, two in the lower peninsula and one in the upper peninsula with some other variables, including growth inhibitors to keep the stalks shorter and antifungals. Um, and we're, we're essentially currently doing what was started a hundred years ago, which is Michigan State University and a handful of distilleries. We're trying to see what is what are the flavor and agronomic concerns for 15 different rye varietals right now? What grows well where? What's the best way to grow it? How does it taste? So it's going through a sensory panel. And uh, what was high starch 50, 60 years ago is low starch now compared to um, the hybrids that have been coming out of places like Manitoba and Alberta and, and, and some other places as well. Yeah, that was going to be a big thought of mine on, on what Seagram's is probably saying between the lines there is, you know, we know that Rosen has this terrible issue with the results of it when it cross-pollinates. So, you know, 
buying grain from someone if you know if it's a small kernel and it's got a very low starch content you know it's it's probably hybridized so my guess is they were saying that between the lines there that you know you want to go get pure rosin that's large and plump and has has a good starch content to it as opposed to the rosin that could be on the market that is you know you know unethically grown is probably not the right word but i think you guys know what i'm saying here rosin pipe rye which is mentioned in that right. manual right. is different than certified rosin rye right these are spe- these are these are quality specifications I, I think you have two wildly different sides of the spectrum of of what good quality rosin is in terms of what that looks like in the starch content in that even back then as opposed to rosin that's cross-pollinated right completely different sides of the spectrum here um and then you know to get into to current day like Ari is saying too you know right now we're used to extremely high starch content grains right that's post-prohibition and, and just the way that agriculture is headed in this country is is always for efficiency right now and and what we've done essentially is we've we've bred everything to be so efficient and have such a high starch content that we've actually kind of outbred flavor right we've prioritized one versus the other as opposed to you know trying to vertically grow both right so i think moving back like again yeah rosen you know, I think we have a lot of trials to find out what this looks like in the very end and what our specs consistently will be out of this grain. But, you know, I think we are anticipating a little bit lower starch content here, but usually what we're used to seeing from heirloom grains, you know, things that we've seen from some of our heirloom corn trials is, you know, some of these things with lower starch content actually have a lot higher value in flavor right? Some of these more heirloom grains, right? That's, so I think it's kind of a, it's, it's a bit of a teetering scale, right? Like starch doesn't always mean flavor or quality, right? Starch just tells you how much sugar you can turn into alcohol out of something. doesn't mean it's going to taste good. Right. It's oftentimes inversely proportional. So you can alcohol, alcohol, ethanol doesn't have much of a flavor, right? Mm -hmm. So it, if we're making whiskey from corn at 80% starch, and that's creating a ton of ethanol, you're not creating a ton of flavor there, which is why you need a flavoring grain like rye, mm. right? To, to produce the flavor. The corn is there for yield and to create a neutral base and then use your quote flavoring grains, which is, you know, again, going back to the tour of uh, Kentucky distilleries, you know, what's our flavoring grain? Our flavoring grain is rye. Well, rye, rye doesn't grow here. What do you mean, right? It's rye or whatever the flavor grain is. Um, so yeah, it's oftentimes inversely proportional. One of the things that was published in this recent paper, our grain varietal trial for 2022, um, was actually corroborating something that that we uh, figured out sensorily previously, which is we we tried a bunch of varietals in our rye whiskeys to determine which one had the, the character that we were looking for, that kind of spicy character. Um, and it turns out uh, you run uh, 15 different varietals through uh, the analytical equipment. The varietal that had the highest ferulic acid, which is converted into 4 vinyl biocol, which is the, the main like spice, pepper that we're looking mm. for, is actually Wheeler rye, which is a mm. varietal that was developed here in Michigan, which has a higher, uh, essentially, 4 uh, vinyl biocol capability. 
than the other 14 varietals that that we uh, we tried um, in, in this university, uh, multi-year uh, university research. And we kind of picked that up just by nosing different spirits uh, years ago, but we found out this week that we were uh, vindicated and justified in, in, in choosing that varietal that worked out. I am absolutely going to read these because I, I, I love this kind of stuff. Uh, I, it's reminding me of a conversation I had, and this is a quick tangent because um, I want to get to the other uh, points too, but uh, a conversation I had with Nick Moss over at Dancing Goat a couple yeah. months ago, and he said he'd run a bunch of river idols through uh, mass spec gas chromatography, and he was finding that one of, well, one of his one of his goals was to basically establish that MGP was using multiple strains of rye because it was just impossible volume-wise to reach and maintain their volume without using multiple sources. And this, this is a homogenization question. But the other thing that he was going through was he's using Danko rye. And he wanted to know the what the organoleptic components were of that uh, off the still and of the grain itself. So it's reminding me of that conversation and how, you know, you're, studies are going so I'm, i'll have to read through because i'm again i'm just fascinated by this um we're thinking about it in the same way and that the short of it is yeah. depends on where you grow it depends on yeah. the soil. depends on a lot of different things just like grapes and it, as the manual said when the climate conditions support it says the high starch content but really you could replace the phrase the high starch content with when the climate conditions support what's best for the grain ideal growth conditions Ideal growth conditions, exactly. Uh, so, say back then the high starch would have been the sixty-two, sixty-three percent. Is that the same approximately that you're getting off of the rosin today? Ish, yeah, Ish. just right about yeah. there. It's and low relative to certainly really low relative to modern hybrids like Hazlitt, um, which Hazlitt man, you can get one hundred and fifty bushels per acre with that stuff. Wow, seventy some percent. Think, don't uh, guys look at it. you can get a lot more bushels per acre at a higher starch yeah. content, but again, the sacrifice is, is flavor, right? And I know, uh, in, in reading and listening to some of these, that um, you guys and, and Allison, as you mentioned, um, are getting about 45 bushels per acre off of that, which uh, is really nothing to sneeze at for sure. But once you compare it to 150 bushels, that's it's it's huge, brutal. It's brutal, yeah. but that's what you got to do for flavor. And we are experimenting with different seeding rates per acre. So we're trying to figure out what is the optimal uh, space between rye plants to maximize yield on an acre. Gotcha. Hey, makes sense. All right. So we're going to jump ahead to the uh, kind of the down, um, downturn for rose and rye, the 50s through the 70s, really through, through 1970, to be honest. Um, so... The first kind of element that I saw and heard about that kept coming up was that you had the group of farmers who had created this pact on South Manitou that they were going to create the seed stock, they were going to protect it, keep it pure for the rest of the country. But then their children, the first generation, were like, I don't want to do this. This isn't what I want to do with my life. Like, I'm not going to be the protector of the rye for the rest of my life. Um, and they decided not to do it. They moved away. They did other things and Manitou itself became uh, uninhabited. So, and that was kind of the first element of this. And then the second, well, let, let's start with that. Like, was there, 
you know, how quickly did that decline happen on the island itself with the, the seed stock availability? By the 19, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I think there's a couple of things that it play to talk about too. You know, I think, you know, you started seeing the islands being used less and less as we started relying on alternative sources of energy other than steamships, right? So Manitou started dwindling a little bit as soon as the whole steamship thing kind of fell off popularity, right? Because that was a great refueling point, you know? Mm-hmm. That, was, that was really the first cash crop on the island was, was wood for refueling these steamships. And it made it a very, very frequent stop where you were easily able to get that rye off the island or get it wherever it's going because people are stopping constantly here, right? Whereas opposed to once that kind of fell out of popularity, it became kind of just a a safe harbor passage, right? So you didn't really stop unless you needed to, weather permitting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that started kind of the gradual decline there. And then I think what really, and I'm sure Ari has a bunch of points to talk about in the middle there, but what really I think sealed the deal was in 1970 when um, South Manitou was taken over by the National Park Service, and so all the land was was removed from the families um, by eminent domain. So mm-hmm. legally, no one was out there farming again. So it, it essentially went from you know, although the the island's population was pretty dwindling at that point. I mean, you still had five or six families out on the island. They were off the island in a year. You know, what I mean, no one lived there anymore. And that's, I mean, I think again, Michter's was like one of the last commercial documented uses of rose and i think that stopped think they, about 1970 if i'm not uh, yeah it was it was 1970 yeah yeah exactly yeah. so i mean obviously you have no more pure rose and seed stock coming off the island after 1970 and we know what happens after cross-pollination so i think you can kind of see rosen's history start to waver there it gets it you know definitely is on shaky ground at that point mm-hmm. yeah, and i mean that that kind of leads to what my second suspicion was is just that as the seed stock starts dwindling then more hybridization happens and because it happens so quickly you know it's not a matter of a decade or even half a decade it's a matter of two years you know i I remember hearing you have you would have to replenish the seed stock or from the seed stock every two years to make sure you were using a pure variety elsewhere so you have to figure that within two years the quote-unquote pure rose and rye was already gone hybridized into whatever else it became um so you know with that do we you know what what, is there any indication as to whether not on the island because we know on the island it was just stop it stopped being grown because there was no one else there at that point but um if there were any you know remaining bastions of of rose and rye being grown do you know if it died out due to just neglect or you know, moving towards commodity grain or, you know, how did it truly die off? It's my understanding, and this is, we're still figuring that's a great question. We're still figuring it out exactly. In the whiskey industry, rye whiskey sales went down and became out of, fell out of fashion, right? Rye whiskey fell out of fashion. And I think even until, you know, five years or so ago, the number that I heard was something like 98, 99% of all the rye whiskey being made in North America was being made either at MGP or at Alberta. 
and it's mm-hmm. being used in multiple brands. So even you know, George Dickel Rye was MGP Rye. Sure. And so who's making the purse? This is a great question for Ian. Who's making the purchasing decisions at MGP in 1965 through 85, right? That's going to tell you a lot about the rye whiskey or essentially the rye that's not being plowed under, right? That's not being used either as a cover crop or to get plowed under. Um, those purchasing decisions are in large part being made by companies like MGP. Gotcha. Yeah, we need to have like a roundtable. I don't know if they can even talk about this, to be honest. I mean, that's always a question in these cases, but uh, we need uh, him. We need Greg Metze on there. We need um, Larry Ebersole. Just get everyone on and just talk about, talk about it. because it's something that needs to be documented. And I don't know if and Laura and, yeah, and, and and Laura. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, two Laura's actually Laura Fields and Laura Patrizio. So um, yeah, we need to have them all on really to, to, figure that out because there's so many questions there and as noted Michter was the last to distill it because 1970 it wasn't available anymore um and i find it fascinating because that's where you know dick stoll is working at the time and uh it's around that time he's making some of what would be a a very dichotomous product you know he's making a Michter's brand that to his own admission was really declining in quality at that point. Um, it, it was started declining in the 50s and really at that point was, was not good. At the same time, you also had the distillation of what would become uh, the A.H. Church brand, which is considered, I haven't tasted it, so I can't say, but it's considered like some of the best bourbon ever made. Um, so where- oh, Chuck Cowdery says that Rosen was not used as the rye component in the Hirsch. Thank you. That is a good thing. I didn't even think to ask that, but um, it's a good question. That's a good point. Thank you. I haven't, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to get to taste that Hirsch. I just don't think so. <laughs> it's out there. It's out there. I mean, look, I, I'll, I'll be happy with the old crow decanters. I'm good with that. Like from the fifties and sixties, that's my bread and butter. So I'll be happy with that stuff. But anyway, the um, I'm curious where you see um, Dick Stoll's legacy fitting into this. And really this could go either way. Whereas you know, how does Dick Stoll's legacy fit into the story of Rosen? And how does the story of Rosen fit into Dick Stoll's legacy? To me, Dick Stoll is Obi-Wan Kenobi. He is this intermediary between the old world and then handing the lightsaber, right, to Eric and Aviana uh, at, at Stolen Wolf. Um, the lightsaber being Rosen in this metaphor. Um, and Dick Stoll is, you know, the person who blesses Rosen and says, you know, he tasted it coming off the still at Stolen Wolf. He says, this is what I remember. That needed to happen, right? Mm-hmm. That was the proof of concept for this whole crazy new world that we're in where Rosen is maybe the tip of the spear when it comes to uh, experimenting with, with varietals that were grown prior to prohibition or during prohibition when flavor may have been a bigger concern than it was post-prohibition, when it was more about volume, yield, keeping costs down, right? And um, I don't think that what happened, you know, recently in the past, you know, 10 years or so in Pennsylvania uh, can, can can be downplayed. I think that it is pointing the direction for essentially the entire industry as to how we can go and discover more flavor. What's the journey 
that that whiskey makers can take enthusiasts and consumers on. It's let's go look for flavor together. Let's try varietals that were once grown and, and revered, but have been forgotten. And Dick Stoll's role in that, in, this is how the story starts, is by, you know, this is a generational tech exchange, right? And, and he's that point. He's the point at which the generations touch each other. It's it's really incredible. And I've had Eric Wolf on before uh, for Soul Wolf. And, uh, you know, he clearly gets emotional even today talking about the impact that Dick had on his life and uh, and and everything that they're doing. And of course, he was also part of the panel that you were on with with Alan uh, talking about Rose and Rye. And so I just wanted to make sure to mention it because he really is. He was someone who worked in obscurity, and I think now, unfortunately, posthumously is really getting the attention and credit that he deserves for this entire industry. And where, as you said, where the particularly the rye industry can go from here. Um, Eric and Avian are, are Luke Skywalker in this metaphor yeah. as well, right? They're, they're the next generation. So it's what, what happened there when they made that rye whiskey, and I have some, they, they were nice enough to send me some. Um, and, it's, and it's one of my prized whiskey possessions is, is, is Rose and Rye from, from Stolen Wolf um, on a, um, That's one of those moments where the past, present, and future are all in the same room together. It doesn't happen very often. It happened when we were on South Manitou planting that first batch, our test batch, which was the, you know, felt like the past, present, and future all together on the same island. And it was the same case, uh, I gather, when they were producing that first batch. I mean, it can't be overstated how important those folks are, not just right now in the distilling world, but I think fast forward a little bit. And when they were making Rose and Rye in Pennsylvania at Stolen Wolf, that's going to be one of those moments. I was fortunate enough to to visit Stolen Wolf, and I got to try some of that Rose and Rye off the still. Um, thank you, thank it was, I shouldn't, it was unaged. It wasn't off the still because then it would just burn, like burn my face off. But you know, the one thirty one proof, out of the bottle, exactly what it was, and it's mind blowing. Mm. It really is mind blowing. I just got um, some samples of the pumpernickel rye, the dark pumpernickel rye that Ryan Lang's producing over at Middle West. Yeah. white dog 138 ish proof like right off the still and i wish uh, i had brought some of the rosen off the still to try because the biggest thing that came to mind i wrote down a whole thing in notes about it but in trying the rosen rye white dog my initial thought was this doesn't taste like a rye it doesn't you know maybe there are some things about it that are rye like but if it is a rye, it doesn't taste like any rye that I've ever had. And it, I just kept going back to it. And I had just an ounce in a Glencairn, but there was something so intriguing mm -hmm. and inspiring, frankly, about drinking it and tasting like this is, this is different. And it still kind of gives me goosebumps thinking about trying that. I, you know, I, I would love to have you up to Michigan State University to try 15 different single varietal ryes next to each other. Because I think that's, again, what started with Rose and Rye is pointing the direction for maybe the industry uh, to experiment with, with different varietals. And next up, we just got a fu state funding for a corn varietal trial, right? So that's the next phase here. It's gonna take decades 
but we're going to lay the groundwork for you know, the next generation of whiskey makers. I say this in 100% sincerity. If you can get me to Michigan State to do this, I would take part in any trial or thing you want me to. And not just because I love whiskey, but because this is that fascinating to me that I would be, I'd be honored just to taste them in my own home, let alone at MSU in the labs and all that. So, um, yeah, so we can, we can talk more about that um, elsewhere because I know we're, we're running short, but I want to make sure to close off with some positive and with the future. And that was a perfect entry to that, which is Rosen Rye is coming back now. And I think, and that's really the third part of the trilogy is this is the return of the Jedi. This is, you know, Rise of Sky, whatever, you know, we're keeping with the Star Wars metaphors. Let's keep it going. You know, this is, not Revenge of the Sith, but the other two works. And you've got, as you said, you've got these studies going on with MSU. Uh, you've got connections with the Penn State Ag Extension, um, Fields Foundation, other distilleries using these varietals, whether it's Rosen or uh, Danko or um, uh, Ryman or, you know, all these different types of rye to experiment. Ryan at, at Middle West, he when we, he and I talked, he's doing kind of the same trials, but with different types of wheat mm -hmm. as opposed to the rye, even though the dark pumpernickel rye itself is its own trial. Um, you were mentioned that you're doing some with corn and I, I wanted to ask particularly about the land race corn from uh, Oaxaca that you mentioned on Embellish Pod. Is that is that part of those corn trials that are coming up? It, it's not because the Oaxacan, so <laughs> Oaxaca is the center of origin for corn, right? So the area around Oaxaca has the greatest genetic diversity of corn in the world because that's where corn emanated from, we think. Mm. Um, and uh, no, Michigan has very different growing conditions than Oaxaca. We have a yeah, different number of days where corn can grow. So we we grow different corn up here than, than they grow down there. But uh, but the varietal trials and in, in, in getting samples of corn, different types of Oaxacan corn fermenting and distilling it and understanding the difference in, uh, in, in sensory profiles has been really interesting. And I should also mention that um, I hope you guys are on, have good health insurance because the hospital level poison ivy story that you told <laughs> was also, I can't even imagine what that's like. Again, I encourage people to listen to the episode uh, with Ari and Doug on Embellish Pod because they talked about that, like clearing the island and the fact that even today, like you've got a no electricity, no pesticides, no nothing. You've got to really raw it out there with tents and all of that um, when you go out there. And it's a fascinating story and also a, a real check when people think, oh, you can just grow this on the island. You go back and forth every day and check it out. Nope. Nope. So hope you got some MSU health insurance. <laughs> For, for any more poison ivy trips that may happen. Colin gets to drive a tractor onto a landing craft, which takes it out to the island because they won't let us keep the tractor out there. So right. we have to take yeah. the tractor back and forth over these shipwrecks, right? Mm -hmm. um, each time and it's folks like Colin who, uh, who keep it moving. Uh, and Colin, any desire to, uh, to drive the ferry at any point? Or are you happy to let that, you know, fourth, fifth generation do it instead? <laughs> you know, honestly, we've 
my family's been doing farming for seven. So, you know, we'll stick to the farming things and we'll, we'll let them get us there. So <laughs> uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Better on a tractor uh, than I am on a boat. I'm, I'm better in a chair. Let's put it that way. That's about as far as I go with that. Uh, well, you know, Ari Khan, this has been, you know, such a great conversation. Uh, there, there, you know, there's of course so many questions more to ask. There's so many uh, rabbit holes to go down, just like, you know, Ari, you found with that Vanity Fair ad, you know, there's, there's always another rabbit hole. And I love that about these, this industry, these topics. So we will talk again for sure. Um, but in the meantime, I will be putting the show notes, uh, the links to Mammoth, links to the timeline. Check out the website for the timeline of Rose and Rye, the, the other products that Mammoth is putting out. Um, reviews, you know, when this article goes live, there'll be reviews and tasting notes, especially for all the products that I'm so excited to try and uh, taste through. And uh, hopefully I'll grab some of that gin too. I got some friends in Michigan, so we'll make it happen. Well, t- uh, let me add really, by the time this is played live, Mammoth will have a fully stocked direct-to-consumer store uh, on mammothdistilling.com, which uh, in applicable markets, you'll be able to grab Northern Rye whiskey and contemporary Northern gin and cherry bounce and actually brandied cocktail cherries as well. Oh man, you're going to, okay. So we're going to have to side-by-side these cocktail cherries now, because I got to admit the Traverse City ones are my favorite. So with no disrespect to you guys at all we're going to have to side by side and it's going to be king of the hill so so Come don't be offended. Let's, do it. let's do it in person we'll get uh jared and moti and chris and everyone over as well say, chris, chris and his families have been have been battling cherries for for generations so it's nothing new here all right bring it on we we cherry will have water. a cherry off cherry, uh, a cherry off it'll be fantastic well Thank you guys so much. Um, hang out with me for a sec just after we end the recording. Um, this has been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hope you all enjoy. There's so much more to learn about this topic and there'll be more to come in future episodes. See you next week.